0: Space is huge, spanning an enormity of space and time that staggers the mind. Such being the case, it is not hard to imagine entire planets being forgotten, colonies lost. Some even believe Earth itself may be one such lost colony. Welcome back to SFIA for another Sci-Fi Sunday, where we relax our focus on science a bit to ponder science fiction concepts and ask how realistic they are. Today, we are contemplating the idea of Lost Colonies, as part of our Rogue Civilization series where we have looked at prison planets, trash worlds, nomadic interstellar civilizations, techno-barbarians, space pirates, and many more. Now, on the one hand, the notion a colony might actually get lost seems unlikely. The galaxy may be huge, but even a catalog and wiki of a trillion stars easily fits on a modern hard drive and adding the plants of each system shouldn't be any challenge for an interstellar empire either, even with millions of backups. So too, people won't ignore a whole star system within a few dozen light years of their own, and we expect most star systems to get colonized. On the other hand, that is contemplating a hypothetical galaxy a million years from now, or more, when the whole place is settled. It is also assuming anything like an organized data transfer and verification system occurs. In terms of bribes, how expensive and risky really would it be to get a bureaucrat back here on Earth to lose one tiny little red dwarf or brown dwarf? We do lose stars all the time. How long before we noticed and how long before some mislabeled and remote star in the distant hazy edge of the galaxy got noticed as mislabeled by a neighbor the corrections sent back to Earth, 50,000 years of signal lag away, and verified, updated, transmitted, and received. The reality is that while we expect the whole galaxy to be colonized, we do not expect a unified empire, exactly because of that time lag, and there are many stars that have no near neighbors. The galaxy is not homogenous, where every star has several neighbors 1-10 to light years away. Many have closer neighbors, many have none that close. And more importantly, as of today, none of those neighboring systems have any colonies of ours on them at all, which implies it's a lot harder than we think if anyone has tried it before in our galaxy. We don't know that space colonization taking every available star is an inevitability, it's just my own reasoning for my preferred solution to the Fermi Paradox, as I don't like the idea of everybody going extinct, and I can't see why they wouldn't eventually settle every decent spot. But all of this assumes a distant time, a million years or so hence, when we've had time to colonize everything. A key point in our rogue civilization series is that we're not really discussing anything fixed or eternal. Prison planets, or techno or pirate bases aren't things that are likely to stay the same for centuries. However, major epochs of civilizations don't require that. The entire American frontier period is generally considered to have lasted 3 centuries, and the period of the Wild West is generally considered to be the generation or two after the American Civil War, and involved only a small fraction of the US population off on the frontier. Clearly it's pretty influential though, even globally In a century and a half later, it's one of the few principal historical influences on science fiction, Firefly, Cowboy Bebop, The Mandalorian, to name a few current ones. The same can be said of countless others too, as an example, the Piracy in the Caribbean also lasted a few centuries, but the main period, or golden age, of piracy was about one lifetime, 1660 to 1726. The Stuart dynasty of Great Britain overlapped with that piratic period and lasted a similar time on the throne, and the Tudors before them about the same, Indeed, a lifetime or two tends to describe most dynasties, and even ones that had come to be viewed as lasting generations and being the foundation of their culture rarely measured centuries, even when folks living in them regarded them as eternal and unchangeable. So we can easily imagine a colony getting lost or getting itself lost on purpose for a period of centuries or even tens of thousands of years, longer than all of human civilization. Let's talk about how this happens and consider three cases. Scenario 1. The colony intentionally hid themselves from the outset, and we'll call this Colony Fleet Camino. Scenario 2. Something happened during the flight that resulted in them getting lost. We'll call this one Colony Ship Cordfire. Scenario 3. Something happened afterward to lose them, and we'll call this one Colony Fleet McCaffrey. The first reference is Planet Camino from Star Wars. They are the ward full of Cloners that got itself deleted out of the Jedi Archives, thus Obi-Wan had to look for it in Attack on the Clones. Cordfire is the name for a science fantasy trilogy by C.S. Friedman where a sleeper ship carrying colonists was assigned to hunt for viable planets and the criteria kept failing to get met till it ended up on the fringe of the galaxy and dumped its colonists on a very deceptive world called Urna. McCaffrey is a reference to Anne McCaffrey's porn, colonized for millennia and fallen back on primitive technology, never visited again by the rest of humanity in that time, with one exception. This was a very popular theme in a lot of Silver Age science fiction from in and around the space race. Another famous one is Roger Zelazny's Lord of Light, where the colonists settle on their world and exist for millennia without any apparent contact from Earth or other colonies. Now, is that realistic? In a way, yes. Space colonization concepts of the 20th century, when not assuming fast and light travel, tended to assume we only colonized the maybe one in a thousand stars that would have a yellow sun and a world in the same mass, composition, and temperature as Earth. It also assumed we would only get there by slow boat, ships moving at much less than light speed, maybe even crawling out at a mere thousandth light speed. We've nicknamed that, colonizing the Galaxy, and we're doing an episode on it in a month or two. In that environment, the idea of trade between stars is laughable, and even revisiting worlds you knew were colonized is an iffy play. You could send them a signal in a hundredth of the time, and if they didn't reply, the assumption would be either that they didn't want to, or could not, and at the latter, they were probably dead, in which case a visit to investigate and recolonize suddenly seems like a bad risk. It may be a hundred light-years between the nearest neighbors in such yellow-sun, earth-like Ward options, or 10,000 years of travel at 1% light speed. If they just happen to be low-tech for a while, well, if your ship needs 10,000 years to arrive at that star, odds are they'll have recovered at some point and sent out a signal. If not, it's probably a death trap of a Ward anyway, or they don't want visitors and aren't returning the signal in which case any ship coming to investigate will be quietly destroyed. Because if that colony thrived, then a millennia of growth means some industrial titan of billions, even if they began by numbering tens of thousands, and they've got a lot of guns, all of which are easier to build than ships. Now this period assumes you only see by radio waves, otherwise maybe the best telescope could actually notice a planet as a blob, like ours do now. It's a pre-exoplanet view when SETI was all about hunting for radio communications, in this one losing a colony is really easy. I don't think this is the galaxy we'll see unfold, I think our colonization of space will move out at more like 10% of light speed and stop in every single star system, every single brown dwarf or rogue gas giant, and on every rock big enough to bother building an outpost on. Now, 10% of light speed may be high, It might even be less than 1% in terms of overall expansion wave, but that's even more reason to seize every rock along the way. Folks can still get lost this way, too. We assume people will aim to colonize at a rate we feel we can comfortably expand, and probably because there will be a certain subsidy for expanding to that next shell of space a bit further from Earth and the expanding spherical colonized core. It is possible we'd see a von Neumann colonization effort, wave after wave of self-replicating ships leapt out into space, but as we discussed before, this is basically a suicidal effort by any major power here at home. If they are stronger than all their neighbors combined, back here, then they need not rush to colonize and it merely risks colonies being poorly settled and easier to fail or rebel. Otherwise though, when they begin launching ships, those can easily be overrun by smaller ships, which need no deceleration fuel thus can move twice as fast and thus will be overtaken and destroyed, and their neighbors can pounce on them for their attempt at galactic conquest. Also, expansion is generally fueled by either a desire to escape, which does not imply you're the guy running the show back home, or resource scarcity. It is really hard to use up all the resources in this solar system, especially given that most of them are in our sun and would take at least a million years of starlifting to extract, but still probably be emerging faster and cheaper than via interstellar mining operations. So in all likelihood, most colonization will be driven by either a general expansion push to fill up new territories, where closer is better and speed is not an issue, or by folks looking to be far away. That general expansion should be a slow war, whereas the latter would be as fast and as far as you can get. Let's assume we colonize outward, every system, at fully 10% of light speed, but we can make ships able to move at 25%, and that indefinite life support on a generation ship or indefinite storage on a sleeper ship is viable. That means a group of folks who want to be alone and head all the way out to the opposite galactic rim, from the get-go, 70,000 light years away, would get there 300,000 years from now. That main expansion of civilization would get there 700,000 years from now, 400,000 years after that ship. What's more, that's the main disk of the galaxy. We have stars that nominally are still part of the Milky Way, nearly a million light years away. Things just get spread out more and thinner. Indeed, attempts at intergalactic colonization are likely to settle on a bit of a zigzag of the various stars separated by thousands of light years on a moving bridge between galaxies. This could leave abandoned and lost colonies on the way, simply as their nearest neighbor might need millennia to even get them a signal, let alone a flyby probe or one able to slow for a real look. Now once you're a thousand light years from home, nobody's gonna notice you slowly turn your course by a few degrees over a few centuries, or ever investigate an emergency signal saying you were damaged by a high-speed relativistic collision you will just be a warning note about why ships should not travel that fast because your debris would be scattered over tens of light-years before any ship could arrive to investigate, so you could fly right to some fringe world beyond the galactic rim, then divert to another, assuming anyone even tries to claim rights or sell them. You could log your flight path and get someone to delete it for you, Indeed, most groups settling distant worlds hoping for freedom of their ideas in the New Promised Land are likely to have a pretty decent apparatus at home funding the effort who stays behind, either because you can't buy enough ships for everyone or because they believe in the goal but want to stay with their family or life more, so they sneak in and do that. This is what has happened for our Camino colony fleet, they left with many ships to go found their perfect world, which involves a lot of cloning, Some of their agents and backers are going to try to delete their records when they leave, but in case they fail, the KCF will still attempt to change course once they are far out from the inner sphere of human space. Now being cloners, they don't believe in keeping all their eggs in one basket, so they have carefully chosen their original official destination system as the one that will require flight past a large red giant from Earth and the solar system. Where most of the big detectors are, and that they are going to have their fleet break up and scatter to several stars 50,000 light years from Earth, while in that red giant shadow, for which they believe they will be able to build their empire. Those destinations are picked randomly from an available list of potentially suitable ones and each ship's captain is given orders to shut off their tracking and recording of other ships during the fleet breakup, ensuring no one knows where each cell is going so now nobody knows about any single one of these ships, and indeed the fleet archives have every detail of the various manifests deleted, so they can't even track each other down. They will assume that if their goal of a clone society of already perfected genes and ideology works, the colonies will easily recognize and embrace each other if they reconnect. So our journey continues with one ship, the KCF Lama as it heads towards the Tarantula Nebula and a yellow dwarf star system a few thousand light years beyond it, which their fleet was able to detect obscured by the nebula. 162,000 light years traveled at roughly 25% of light speed has their arrival in the year 650,000 AD. Upon arrival, they destroy all communicators able to send a signal strong enough to be easily picked out at interstellar distance, and ban their construction. They begin colonizing on their world, Lama Su Prime, a super-earth with no land surface except its polar ice caps, in their colonies hidden under those caps, connected by long tethers to the deep sea floor mining operations. They estimate that at 10% of light speed, the human expansion wave would arrive sometime around the year 1.6 million AD, and thus should have nearly a million years of safety from outside interference. Now, we get a lot of examples of lost colonies in Star Trek, but in one episode, up the long ladder, we get two at once. It's an awful episode in my opinion, but those two colonies consist of one that's an Irish-flavored colony of a techno-primitive attitude and another that was nearby and very pro-technology but for various reasons only had a handful of colonists survive who fell back on cloning as their means of procreation. The colonists also had come over time to view natural reproduction and the process for it disgusting and loathsome. In that episode, they argued that repeated cloning had resulted in each clone being a copy of a copy, fading out, and soon their civilization would collapse from genetic copy fatigue which using the old-school Xerox paper copiers at the time, this was 1989 when it aired, kinda made sense, and the writer was a historian and a lawyer, not a biologist. Mind you, she also penned some of the best TNG episodes, I just hate that particular episode. I actually like the clone subplot as a basic storyline, the idea of needing new DNA input into your colony and trying to run it off just a few folks, unfortunately that's just not an accurate portrayal of that issue. However, to avoid making up another calamity to befall, we will assume Arcanists on Lama Siu Prime had their genetic archives damaged by an act of sabotage after they had their basic terraforming in place. In the spirit of that episode, two young clones wanted to marry and have a normal life and natural kids, so they got their hands on one of the multi megaton nukes being used to blow volcanoes into the crust to raise some land up and blew up the cloning labs, which the government had kept strictly controlled and the government of Lamassu went with it. And now they lack the schematics and technological infrastructure to replace them. They figure in a few generations of natural breeding they'll have the numbers and resources to restore the status quo. Unfortunately, not only does classic reproduction become quite popular, but people start having a negative view of the old order and technology with it. Also with only a few dozen prime humans they're all cloned from, even though they were pretty healthy and minus main genetic illnesses originally, they're getting some serious genetic bottlenecking, and we'll assume all the inbreeding is resulting in a lot of low IQ folks, not new scientific geniuses and engineers. Now species don't actually go extinct from genetic bottlenecking itself. They can but that's as much because of whatever factor was killing them off to the point they were genetically bottlenecking. Eventually, a mix of mutation and time will create a viable gene pool, and that's what happens in the unforty millennia of Lamasu, whose restoration to real technology in numbers is severely hampered by living as techno barbarians on the iceberg cities of that oceanic world, fighting between each other and the mutant mormen of Lamasu's remaining deep sea floor mining outposts. They arrived in the year 650,000 AD, and now, just 350,000 years later, in the year 1 million AD, a new colony ship arrives from a group that was from another vanguard human expansion effort, with somewhat similar ideas about jumping far from the leading edge of the main human expansion. Now they've uncovered a bunch of mutants with lots of genetic engineering in their deep past, and yet who are still detectable as human, even though at first they thought they were aliens. Now they know them as the Lost Colony of Lamassu, and since they are not into genocide, they settle the large moon of that super-Earth instead, and ought not to send back news of this discovery lest someone revoke their claim of the system. No one ever figures out their origin story since it's a million years after they left before anyone on Earth even gets a hint of their existence, but some scholars speculate they may have some relation to the clonal wars that raged a few thousand light-years from there between the 989th and 1012th millennia, a minor war on the galactic fringe that involved a few million worlds and a few quadrillion casualties. So there's Scenario 1, a colony lost by intent. Let's consider Scenario 2, the colony ship cordfire, whose reason for getting lost occurs along the way. This lone colony ship is a sleeper ship whose artificial intelligence was programmed to seek out a world which was not occupied and was far from home and available, and far from any other colony, and that it had to meet some pretty ideal circumstances. They estimated on leaving that as long as they kept heading further from Earth as they traveled, they'd be able to find unclaimed worlds, and stop to refuel and repair and examine them to see if they were good enough, They had very strict criteria, and by a mix of misestimating and bad luck, they keep pushing further out in the galaxy until eventually finding one out past the edge of the galaxy in extragalactic space, where they finally find an ideal world practically ready for life. Now, they weren't interested in doing the hard work of terraforming themselves in favor of the AI and robots doing it. They're not really lazy, they just don't want to make the long trip just to spend the rest of their lives in domes or underground habs. Indeed, what they do not know is that in reality, the ship went all the way into intergalactic space and realized it no longer had any real chance of finding the world they wanted. And indeed, even most of the borderline candidates it found would be tens of thousands of years of travel backwards and might already be colonized, given that the high standards meant those would be the most desired worlds. So what it does is find a nice metallic asteroid, one of many orbiting a young extragalactic star that happens to meet the required spectrum g type dwarf, and has built a big computer and power collector from that asteroid and hung it as a statite near the star but on its rimward side to make it hard to see from inside the galaxy. Now it's found the necessary wiggle room in its orders to achieve a perverse instantiation and has uploaded its colonist minds into the virtual ward of Orna, which meet the criteria barely, but their tour the ship was horribly damaged. And for some reason technology doesn't work here so well, so no computers and stuff anymore, but that's okay because for some reason, magic works. In this particular case, that lost colony is going to be hard to find, because a statite hanging over that sun, opposite the galactic disc, might be able to hang less than the diameter of that star above it. We examined some tricks for that in our episode Colonizing the Sun. Indeed, we talked about some tricks for even hiding colonies inside cooler stars. To simulate a whole planet and emulate its billion or so citizens need not involve a very big satellite of power collectors and computers either, it might only need to be a few kilometers across. To spot it, you'd have to be further out from the galaxy, and it would be a bit peculiar to engage in casual astronomy of stars closer to the Milky Way at that point and if you did, you're probably on your way to some other distant star or galaxy and not inclined to turn around and investigate. Even a message back is likely tens of thousands of years from being received and acted upon. If folks ever found this lost colony though, as a big power collector hanging behind a star, the AI running it might just say it was a regular old AI megamind that liked being left alone and no one would ever know it held a virtual ward inside it, even if it got destroyed one day, that destruction might only reveal the colony inside it if it tried to play that as a gamble for Morsi from an attacker. was many ways to get lost, after all, and inside a virtual universe is one of them. Such lost colonies might be tiny seeming computers buried deep inside little Oort Cloud icy rocks running on nuclear power plants producing only a few kilowatts but for countless eons to come or they might be back on Earth, or in orbit of Earth, in the bank vault of some company whose policy allows safe deposit storage boxes with micro black hole generators and supercomputers inside. Let's consider Scenario 3, the County fleet McCaffrey, composed of the trio of County ships, the Yokohama, the Bahrain, and the Buenos Aires, who freely and openly traveled to a war they were able to scrabble together the money for buying the rights to, because the world was designated as a parallel Earth but with negligible resources, or P-E-R-N. It's a lonely board around a lonely star in the Sagittarian sector but far from any neighbors, many of which are mineral-rich systems full of asteroids awaiting mining. They're looking for a simple life but not an ultra-low-tech one, and they file that with colonial authorities who are not really surprised that they go off the grid within a few centuries of arriving and reporting a solid initial success. Now, in Anne McCaffrey's classic *Dragon Riders of Porn series, they get attacked by mindless alien thread falling from the sky, dragged there by the Red Star, a planet on a deep elliptical orbit to the depths of space, where a voracious but mostly dormant alien lifeform lives. See our episode *Void Ecology* for some more discussion of scenarios like that. But they didn't come planning for needing a big infrastructure, and they got most of what they had trashed by that unexpected forced fall of these creatures down their planet. A rescue party does arrive later but thinks they're all dead except one isolated outpost that survived and thought they were it, but which had a working beacon. I love that series but it's not hyper realistic as a scenario. Now, we could tinker with it but there's no real need. It's not hard to believe a lot of colonies would fail, and that the ones most likely to fail would be those furthest from the core human civilization. They may have run there because they're techno-primitivists or pacifists wanting to be away from war, or because they have an ideology that everyone else hates, and maybe because no matter what they believe it's not really functional or practical and in the hard times of early colonial life either gets abandoned or becomes their suicide letter. Maybe the pacifist colony turns non-pacifist after a few generations. Maybe some pirates or exiles flee to their ward, but bring their guns and their own ethics, or lack thereof, with them. There's a million ways a colony on the fringe of civilization could fail or barely eke its way along, And we're talking about the settlement of billions of star systems, and we mean systems not worlds, because one space habitat buried in a minor asteroid of our solar system might be a few thousand square kilometers of living area, but that's enough for a big civilization in isolation, and even the middle of the asteroid belt it would still be more isolated in terms of distance than any isolated civilization here on Earth was, even if the belt had a million such colonies in it. It's not just that among a hundred billion systems, some might get lost for a few centuries or millennia, it's that in each system there's room for millions of space habitats that might get lost in their own way, because a rotating habitat isn't really a place you can force your way into without brutal casualties and critical damage. They're a nightmare to invade with the intent of occupying. So it's quite possible habitats left themselves, especially if they had said they wanted to be, might be left for millennia at a time until those inside no longer remember their origins. So no, there is nothing weird about all those billions of systems and millions of minor plants and habitats in them getting lost for periods of time. Rather, what's weird about many lost colony scenarios is the idea that nobody ever comes and checks in over centuries, And again, that's not weird in the context of slowboat space travel and only colonizing the rare star system with the rare inhabitable planet. It's a real long trip with little hope of profit at the other side for the folks making it. Nobody is going to send a colony ship to a world where all the signs of life from previous settlers just ceased. But they can send a probe. A probe to take a look and maybe go poke around. After all, it might be a very smart and capable probe. If it's lost, well, that's unfortunate. If it finds signs of abandoned intelligent life, well it can report home or follow its force contact protocols. Follow-up missions can be sent, but this might take centuries before it's decided to even send one, with many assuming a lost signal might start back up even after a nuclear world war if they just wait a few generations. Then the probe goes, another few centuries, it reports back by radio, another few decades, another mission is sent, another few centuries and now we're already up to a millennia. That's a near-eternity in civilization terms. It might be longer, too, a planet is very likely to have a lot of automated communications abroad in orbit, or even deep system or solar orbits. A regime coming on hard times might set those communicators to run a string of all-is-well messages to deep space and that visitors are not welcome. Then the cataclysm comes and nobody knows how to shut them off, or change the message, and soon forget they even exist as they rebuild. How many millennia before those beacons die or they rebuild from the ashes? Remember, rebuilding on a colony world might be harder than a post-apocalyptic Earth too. A colony of a few million with only a few centuries of existence and terraforming infrastructure behind them, especially one that didn't like self-replicating machines, might have a way worse time trying to rebuild than we would, it also may turn out spaces really harder to colonize than we think, and that most early colonies fail and are very unenthusiastic about trying to repeat colonial efforts, slowing or even halting expansion, so that even our nearest colonies fell into isolation and viewed Earth as a distant dream. Alright, so there's some hypothetical lost colony scenarios, some might make good stories, some of course already are, and I imagine you can think of more, feel free to borrow the ones from the episode for any you feel like writing up, or to share them in the comments below. I did tease the idea of humanity being a lost colony of aliens near the start, and I had originally meant to have that in our script, but we're already running over time today. Truth be told, I could easily write a whole series on this topic, and we recently had the Silurian Hypothesis win a Facebook topic poll for episodes. That's the question of how much of humanity's ruins might be left millions of years from now, and if we would know if an order civilization once lived here, like smart dinosaurs or some alien forerunners from whom we were an abandoned colony. So we will have that episode on the Silurian Hypothesis next month, and carry over the discussion of Earth itself being a lost colony until then. In the meantime, we have plenty of other episodes coming up, and we'll get to them and some channel announcements in a moment. But first, it is Sci Fi Sunday, and it is time to pick out our Audible Audiobook of the Month. Now, I mentioned quite a few series today, most prominently Star Wars Clone Wars Era, composed of dozens of novels and a whole cartoon series, the nearly as big sci-fantasy classic Dragon Riders of Porn, at a couple dozen novels, and Celia S. Friedman's Courtfile Trilogy, and I would cheerfully recommend them all, but today's Audible Audiobook of the Month goes to Roger Zelazny's novel, Lord of Light, which is generally considered his greatest work of many dozens of novels. Lord of Light is set on a distant future colony world that's kept all of its technology while going primitive, with the early colonists fearing technology will both endanger humanity and their own preeminence as immortal colony founders now worshipped as gods. It is a brilliant tale that shows a transhuman civilization ruling over a primitive one and explores reincarnation, mind-body transference, immortality, identity, personality, and mythology, all with the mixture of the profound philosophy, elegant prose, and irreverent humor that made Roger Zelazny one of the titans of science fiction and fantasy with three nebula and six Hugo awards. Zelazny is one of my favorite authors and was also one of the first folks to embrace audiobooks, having narrated many of his own before passing away in 1995, and I was very glad to see many of his other works showing up on Audible for another generation to appreciate. You can find Lord of Light, many of Zelazny's other epics like This Immortal and The Chronicles of Amber, and those novels by Anne McCaffrey and Celia Friedman over on Audible among their huge inventory of audiobooks. However, they don't just have audiobooks, but also many shows and podcasts, such as Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur. That's right, SFIA's audio-only version is available on Audible for free as part of the Audible Plus catalog. That's just some of the great content in the Audible Plus catalog, which also has sleep and meditation tracks available, as well as guided fitness programs and Audible Originals like Impact Winter, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and Stan Lee's Alliances, narrated by Will Wheaton of Star Trek. Audible has got literally centuries worth of content for you to pick from to keep you entertained while commuting or walking out, including over 500 hours of this show now, and the whole Audible Plus catalog full of free books and other content comes as a bonus when you join Audible, in addition to your usual one free audiobook each month and big member discounts on additional ones, and as always, new members can try Audible for free for the first month, Just go to Audible.com slash Isaac or text Isaac to 500-500. Alright, so that will finish us up for the day, and we're halfway through May, but we have plenty of episodes left. Also, for those who still haven't registered, virtual registration is still open through May 16th for my talk on biomimicry, Friday morning, May 20th, at the Ohio Aerospace Institute's Bioscene Conference, which is linked in the episode description. The same is true for my upcoming appearance at the International Space Development Conference on May 29th, where I'll be giving a live talk on Megastructures at the normal time we do our monthly live stream, Sunday, May 29th at 4 p.m. Eastern. And the topic inspired me to finally roll up my sleeves and revisit our original episode, Megastructures Summary, from 2014. So on June 9th, we will have the episode, The Megastructure Compendium which has an approximate runtime of just under 2 hours, making our longest episode ever so that we can cover every megastructure we know of, which was around 100 major types. Before then, we'll be launching into a new mini-series looking at finding and exploring distant worlds, surveying for habitable interstellar star systems, on Thursday, May 19th, and then we'll close out the month with a look at dark sky stations, stratospheric satellites, and ultra-low orbital infrastructure. Then we'll jump into June and start the month by asking what ancestor simulations are and if we are living inside one. Now if you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button, share it with others, and leave a comment below. You can also join the conversation on any of our social media forums, find our audio-only versions of the show, or donate to help support future episodes. And all those options and more are listed in the links in the episode description. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.